just as David triumphed over Goliath, that magnificent champion of immense strength with the weight of the world behind him. He was slain with only a sling and a stone. Well, so too did the people of Cochabamba, Bolivia defeat the mighty Philistine who sought to challenge them. With a tyranny of numbers and an immovable will, undaunted by the crushing weight of a new world order, they refused to surrender. Surrender what, you ask? Water, the essence of life. And who, you might ask? Was Goliath incarnate? Above all, how did the people of Cochabamba, Bolivia, a modest city of 500,000 inhabitants at the time, rise to the occasion in such spectacular fashion? This is the story of the Cochabamba Water War, a spectacular display of constituent power which unfolded at the turn of the new century. Let's start from the beginning. Part 1. Bolivia. Causality is not linear. There are multiple loops and spirals. There is often no clear beginning, no sudden escalation. And when it comes to Bolivia, for want of a trigger, you may be lost searching in the tall mountains that nestle the city of spirited men and women. Were there to be a beginning, it would probably have been the gradual privatization of public services in Bolivia, introduced by the Liberal Coalition government, which was elected in 1982. This was the core of a grand structural adjustment policy that sought to dismantle and build anew the structure of the post-revolutionary military state that had been in place since 1964. Overburdened by unmanageable debt loads, the Liberal government was hamstrung in their efforts to enact far-reaching reform. In the mid-1980s, plummeting commodities prices, limited tax revenues and exorbitant social expenditures triggered a vicious economic crisis in Bolivia. Amidst the backdrop of economic turmoil, the Bolivian government frantically sought a solution, eventually consulting the International Monetary Fund who advised the adoption of a neoliberal structural adjustment policy which resulted in significant social, political and economic consequences for Bolivia. Critics of these new policies assert that these consequences merely characterized the failings of neoliberal development policy. As Professor Susan Spronk of the University of Ottawa explains, I think what is different is the expectations and levels of public investment is what's really changed. That's what really changed in the neoliberal era, is this fantasy that the market can provide and this shift from supposed market failure, which was framed development policy in the post-Second World War period, towards state failure, that somehow 
the private corporations are going to provide more efficient and equitable services. Under the guise of this structural adjustment program, which was dubbed Bolivia's new economic policy, like vultures, several foreign-owned companies steadily picked away at Bolivia's ailing economy, acquiring public utilities for cents on the dollar. As Oscar Oliveira, a trade unionist who emerged as the leader of the protests in Cochabamba, Bolivia said, Ours is a small country, and it hardly owns anything anymore. Our mines were privatized. The electrification company was privatized. And the airlines, the telecommunications, the railways, our oil and gas. The things we still own are the water and the air. And we have struggled to make sure that the water continues to be ours. And struggle, they did against an opponent of tremendous proportions, an international consortium of companies called Aguas del Tunari, whose largest minority shareholder was an American construction company, the largest in the world, the Bechtel Corporation. Part two, Tambien la Luvia, even the rain. Still under acute economic distress, in the mid-1990s, the Bolivian government appealed to the World Bank for financial assistance. The World Bank agreed, and in February 1996, bank officials agreed to loan $14 million to the city of Cochabamba in order to enhance water provision. However, the loan was conditional on Cochabamba privatizing their water services. The city of Cochabamba is located in a dry, fertile valley in which there has always been tremendous competition over water use for both domestic and agricultural purposes. As a result, the provision of water has long been one of the most important political issues in the Cochabamba Valley. Just seven years prior to the privatization, a conflict erupted between small farmers and government authorities over an expansive well drilling program, which was orchestrated by the Provincial Water Authority. The Servicio Municipal de Agua Potable, Alcantarillado y Desagües Pluviales, or SAMAPA for short. In June 1997, World Bank officials provided further credit to Bolivia with a significant caveat. Bolivia's president, Hugo Banza, was informed that $600 million in international debt relief would be dependent on, amongst other things, the city of Cochabamba putting its water into corporate hands. When asked what role the World Bank had to play in the eventual chaos which soon ensued, Mr. Jim Schultz, the executive director of the Democracy Center and the author of the Water War Dispatches, had this to say. They pushed the dominoes forward that led to the water revolt. Uh, and they did that because of the, the ideological bias with which they operated and, and a good deal of arrogance. Um, I mean, essentially, the way it works is, you know, 
World Bank economists and officials and analysts sitting in Washington in a big granite building a hemisphere away look at a problem like water in Cochabamba and reading about it on paper, they decide, okay, the solution is the city needs to put its water system into the hands of a private company. And they have a theory about what that will achieve. Now, do they have a right to have a theory? Sure. Do they have a right to communicate that theory uh, to the government? Of course they do. That's fine. But what they don't have a right to do is to coerce the government to privatize, which they did by um, making it a conditionality of lending for water. And that's the way in which they pushed it forward. Accordingly, fearing the possibility that future lines of credit would soon become unavailable should they not acquiesce to the World Bank's conditions, the city of Cochabamba began to hear bids for the privatization of Samapa. Sure enough, in 1999, the only company which bid for the concession, Aguas del Tunari, won. But why Cochabamba? As explained by Professor Susan Spronk of the University of Ottawa. It's been very well demonstrated that private companies are not interested in bidding on contracts like the Cochabamba one. And there was one scholar and researcher, Karen Bakker, who actually suspected, and she never wrote this down because uh, you don't want to be sued for defamation, but she actually suspected that Bechtel bid on this contract in order to uh, pursue the believing governments in court. I mean, that's very speculative. No one really knows. But when you actually look at the contract, it was a real mess. These sentiments are echoed by Mr. Jim Schultz, who continues. It was a profit-making expedition. You know, it was it was a profit making expedition wrapped in the language of we're here to help. Um, carried out behind closed doors in which they negotiated with the government to achieve the following things. One was a guaranteed rate of return of 16 percent a year on average for 40 years, which is exorbitant and essentially the willingness of the government to send in soldiers in the event that there was any discord over how the water company behaved. So we, we come in, you guarantee this profit, and the government says, don't worry, if things get out of hand, we have guns. The terms of the contract were unforgiving. Samapa was to transfer all control over the water and sewage services in Cochabamba to Aguas del Tunari on a 40-year lease. Worse still, in order to raise the capital needed to finance the improvement of water services in Cochabamba, Aguas del Tunari instituted rate hikes. As a result, some of the city's inhabitants were paying as much as 200% more for their water utilities. In a country where the average monthly income of a large swathe of the populace was around $100, some citizens were now spending a third of their monthly income on water bills. And to add insult to injury, the terms of the contract, coupled with legislation passed by the Bolivian government, granted monopoly rights over water resources to private companies. No longer could the citizens of Cochabamba use the wells which they had drilled at their own expense. No longer could the citizens of Cochabamba 
even collect rainwater. Aguas del Tunari was to be the sole provider. Goliath was given the keys to the kingdom. Part 3. El agua es nuestras carajo. The water is ours, damn it. I want to tell you about one country tonight, and that's the country of Bolivia, South America's poorest country. Several years ago, the World Bank refused to guarantee a $25 million loan to finance the investment program of the local water co-op and forced Bolivia to sell its water systems to a subsidiary of Bechtel. Uh, the water prices now account in Bolivia for more than the, they pay for food. Well, I have a story to tell you tonight, and that is that the people rose up in Bolivia. And yet, the question still remains. How did the people of Cochabamba, Bolivia, rise up? against a government complicit in the commoditization of a basic need. Against a huge multinational conglomerate backed by two titans of the international economic financial system. Months before the privatization contract with Aguas del Tunari had been completed, a broad-based assembly type organization called the Coordinadora Departmental on Defensa del Agua y de la Vida the Coordinating Committee in Defense of Water and Life, had already began mobilizing the citizens of Cochabamba against the impending corporate seizure of their water resources. The Coordinadora was comprised of associations of rural farmers called the Federación Departmental de Rijón y Sistemas Comunales del Agua Potable, the Federation of Irrigators Associations from the Department of Cochabamba as well as various urban water committees and environmentalists. And although it had a de facto leader in Oscar Oliveira, the Coordinadora was unique for its lack of traditional hierarchical structures. As Professor Susan Spronk explains. One of the things that I think was extremely powerful, and a lot of people have written on this, the people who were actually involved, is how horizontal the organizing structures were. And that's very important for creating buy-in in the movement and broad-based participatory appeal. And so they were committed from a very early age towards broad assembly type organizing. And organize they did. Together, the inhabitants of the rural communities of Cochabamba, angered by the new law which would have them forfeit their community water provision and irrigation systems, forged a bond with those members of the urban communities that had seen their water bills skyrocket overnight and together. They came up with their own structures of power and decision-making uh, that were horizontal and had broad, broad mass participation at the base. David had emerged, born of the collective will of the citizens of Cochabamba to stand up for what was rightfully theirs. He was not anointed by God to defend the Israelites against the Philistines. David was all of them. Rather than a sling and a stone, their weapon was their unshakable conviction, their strength in numbers, and the universal belief that together they would be triumphant. People just said, no, <laughs> like we're not doing this. 
we're not paying our bills and we're not going to take this. And there was a, uh, a blockade and the city of Cochabamba was shut down for in January of 2000 for two or three days. And I know this quite well because my family and I were just coming back from Lake Titicaca and we were in La Paz and we were stranded because we couldn't get home because uh, the buses weren't getting through. So that began this period from January to April where it wasn't just about the organizing, it was about, I mean, you don't shut down a city of 700,000 people with a general strike. You don't blockade roads. You don't do that unless you have a broad, broad public consensus. En masse, Bolivians young and old came from near and far, toiling day after day to have their voices heard. There were reports of elderly citizens, 70 years of age, standing at the front of the blockades. Likewise, of a battalion of street children called the Water Warriors, some as young as 10 years old, who were heavily involved in the demonstrations. By February of 2000, nothing had changed. Prompting the Coordinadora to organize a peaceful takeover of the city to pressure the government to halt the rate hikes and do away with the monopoly provisions of both the contract and the new water law. Over 50,000 people participated in the blockade. No one allowed out, no one allowed in. For 24 hours, the city was shut down. The government's response was to send a faction of the police called Las Dalamatas, the Dalamatians, known for their black and white uniforms notorious for meting out excessive violence in the line of duty. Clouds of tear gas enveloped the streets of Cochabamba like a stubborn fog. The sound of intermittent gunfire underscored the police officers' obedience to the state. The demonstrators set off fireworks as they retort to the use of ammunition. Hundreds of protesters were injured, prompting the government and the coordinadora to reach an agreement. The government was given two months to revert the water rates to their previous level. The contract with Aguas del Tunari was to be revised. This entire mess was to be undone. Hope at last. Part 4. La Ultima Batalla. The Final Battle. And yet, two months later, the deadline expired. The law was still in effect. The rate hikes persisted. Nothing had changed. At this point, the citizens of Cochabamba had grown impatient. They now demanded the outright cancellation of the contract and for a complete overhaul of the water law. The Coordinadora organized an indefinite citywide strike, which was to prevail until the government acquiesced to their demands. Over 100,000 took to the streets of Cochabamba, putting the city in paralysis. This was the final battle. On April 6th, the government held a meeting with members of the Coordinadora in order to bring an end to the blockade and find a solution. Unbeknownst to the Coordinadora members, it was all a ploy. They were all subsequently arrested. However, upon discovering that they had been arrested, the citizens of Cochabamba flooded the plaza where the government building was situated, demanding their release. With help from the Archbishop who acted as a mediator between the government and the Coordinadora, they were released on bail a few hours later. Soon after, 
the Archbishop walked into a meeting of the Coordinadora and announced that the government had agreed to cancel the contract. Victory! At last, Oscar Oliveira then takes to the balcony and addresses thousands of citizens. And he walks out, Compañeros y compañeras, hemos ganado una victoria contra la blah, 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 blah. And everybody goes nuts. And we're crying. And it's like a friend of mine turns and says, Wow. She says, Nobody here ever wins. And it was just like this enormous, enormous thing. And, and the city just went bananas. People were dancing in the streets. And the bishop held a mass in the cathedral. And it was just extraordinary. And I wrote a dispatch for a U.S. newspaper about this amazing victory. And then around 10, 11 o'clock that night, weird things started to happen. The government refused, in La Paz, refused to confirm that the contract was being canceled. They were sitting around trying to figure out what the hell to do. The company faxes an announcement to the TV station saying they're not leaving. And then... Uh, the police start to go and look for the leaders of the coordinador and arrest them to put them on a plane and send them to a jail in the jungle to get them out of the way. And so our phones are ringing off the hook. And then the governor goes on television live at around midnight with tears and resigns on live TV and says he does not want to be responsible for a bloodbath. So you can imagine how tense that was. And then the next day, the government declared a state of emergency. And a state of emergency meant that civil rights were suspended. You couldn't have meetings. You, there was a curfew at like 9 o'clock. Um, they could arrest anybody they wanted on, for whatever reason they wanted. Um, it was a scary moment. And then, the unthinkable happens. A heinous act which was broadcasted all across Bolivia. 17-year-old Victor Hugo Doza was killed by a shot through his face. The death of Victor Hugo Daza shook Bolivia to the core. It was an unforgivable act of violence laid bare for the world to see. For the citizens of Cochabamba and for all Bolivians, this marked the point of no return. All the while, martial law remained in place, signalling the government's intention to see the deal through. To murder and injure its citizens in order to uphold the interests of an unfeeling board of directors living in relative peace and prosperity. For the citizens of Cochabamba, and for all Bolivians, now more than ever, victory was imperative. And so, the protests continued, drawing greater support than ever. The citizens of Cochabamba were galvanized by the death of their fallen son. They piled on more and more pressure, until finally, the government acquiesced to their demands. They had finally realized that the will of the citizens of Cochabamba was unshakable. This was best expressed by Vice Minister Jose Arias, who was sent by the government to Cochabamba to negotiate, and who said, 
it was now apparent that they were being challenged by 100,000 people in the streets ready to do anything. On April 11th, the Cochabamba water war came to its conclusion. An agreement had been signed between the Coordinadora and the government, which guaranteed the withdrawal of Aguas del Tunari and restored the municipal government's control over the water utility. No more false dawns. No more empty promises. No more violence. No more bloodshed. David was triumphant, and his victory marked an important milestone for all of the peoples of the world. The citizens of Cochabamba had demonstrated the tremendous potential for constituent power to effect great change against all odds.